Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Lay down your arms and surrender to mine. I love that song. Hey guys, Zach Twomley here, and welcome to a special episode where we ask an apparently simple question. What happened exactly during the Suez Crisis? If you're completely confused right now, 
First of all, where are my manners? Hello there, as I said. My name is Zach Twomley. I host this crazy thing called When Diplomacy Fails. For those regular listeners, don't worry. We will be returning on the 23rd of April with more Versailles Anniversary Project, and the Italians will come under our attention. For irregular listeners who saw this episode, not referencing any Versailles Anniversary Project and decided to jump right in for something different, please bear with me. Oh, and spoiler alert, from pretty much the 23rd of April until, well, the end of this project, episodes will be coming in hard and fast, so I felt it might be a good idea to give you guys a breather for a little while, until the project heats up, and incredible though it may sound, enters its final phase. I am mindful of the fact that we've been plugging away at the Versailles Anniversary Project since the first week of November, and while I have been having a ball and I've learned so much, I am concerned that some aspiring listeners might take one look at the fact that we're on episode 54 of the project and think, oh my, where do I even begin? So for that reason, I thought it might be helpful to say, never mind those 50-something episodes of that series, look at this former manageable chunk of 14 episodes in this series. We haven't released any teaser episodes for Suez, or even really talked much about what happened during it since September. I can't even remember what September looked like, but what I can do in this episode is provide a relatively comprehensive examination of the conflict we call the Suez Crisis, and provide you also with previews of most of the episodes, 14 so far, to bring you up to speed. The idea is, by listening here, you'll feel so interested, you'll also feel compelled to sign up on Patreon, because, of course, it's always nice when history friends do that, and because we're nearing 300 patrons, it'd be sweet if we cracked that mind-boggling number of supporters in time for our seventh birthday on the 18th of May. Originally, I designed this episode solely to give you all the chance to catch up with what was happening with our Suez Crisis series, But after thinking it over, I decided to insert some of my thoughts about life as a full-time history podcaster to let you know how I'm doing generally, because there won't be a state of the podcast address for another little while, and to enlighten you on some very interesting news. Also to give you a teaser on the fact that on the 18th of May for our birthday episode, which will also be a QA and a and more on that later, I'll be dropping some even more exciting news on you guys. So there's that still to come in this episode, and there's also previews of the Suez Crisis episodes, as I said. So, if that sounds interesting to you, let's crack on with it. First of all, though, it's time I got a bit real with you guys. So let me start by saying, I absolutely love what I do here with When Diplomacy Fails, and I wouldn't change it for the world. In case you weren't aware, in case you just dropped in on this episode, this podcast serves as my income and essentially my job, but I'm also a lecturer. I'm a lecturer in the Technological University of Dublin, where I lecture people in Irish politics, European Union integration, and European Union economics. I am, as those responsibilities might suggest, pretty sick of hearing about Brexit, but having said that, I will probably just sell out and release some episode talking about Brexit in the future, since I have been asked and it shouldn't be too difficult. I'm rambling again, but here's what you should know. Having two full-time jobs is hard, especially one which, in the form of this podcast, sucks in all my spare time. Would it surprise you, knowing me by now, if I told you that I greatly underestimated the amount of time and attention the Versailles Anniversary Project would take? Probably not. Would it surprise you if I said that Releasing as many as five episodes a week, plus getting to grips with a job, that being lecturing, which I've never done before, 
and which has been somewhat stressful to properly feel confident within, has not been all that easy. Again, I don't want to sound a particular way. If anything, I probably just sound tired, but I'm certainly not about to give up or anything like that. The bottom line is, though, between the lecturing, the Versailles anniversary project and the delegation game, I'm busier now than I've ever been in my life. And while some 75% of that time is spent working on my baby and I wouldn't trade this baby for the world, I can see the burnout clouds looming ahead and I'm definitely looking forward to the end of the Versailles anniversary project, not to mention the end of term in university. Now, I have to emphasise I don't regret taking up any one of these challenges, and I'm confident that I'll look back on 2019 as the year I worked really hard and grew a whole lot professionally. While the download numbers for the Versailles anniversary project haven't been what I've hoped when I started out on this mad journey, I'm not really discouraged because I've learned by now how people work when podcast listening. They either decide A, oh boy, look at all these episodes, I'll get started right away at the beginning. They decide B, oh dear, look at all these episodes, I'll wait until he's finished and then listen to everything in one go so I don't fall behind or feel like I'm missing out. Or they say C, oh no, look at all these episodes on one specific era and topic, run for the hills. I understand all of these feelings, but this should give you an idea of what I'm grappling with, as well as a history podcaster. I don't address you guys very often in these dedicated episodes and say, here's the story. I tend to do it more often in blog posts, which have been very well received. So if you want to read about the real-life struggles of a podcaster, as well as hear me moan about them, make sure you check out the Vassal State blog when you're finished listening here. Whatever you do, though, you should know that you, as the listener, are making all of this possible, and I couldn't be more grateful. It's because of you that I'm able to talk to myself about history for a living, and the support and enthusiastic messages I've received urging me to keep going with the Versailles Anniversary Project have meant so much. I'll be damned if I fall behind or fail to properly do the Versailles Anniversary Project justice, but it takes a lot of work to make this happen. I've received some messages from folks asking why I'm not as active on the Facebook page or group, and why I haven't posted to announce new episodes in a while. Mainly, it's because I've had to delegate time where I can spend it most effectively, and when we're sometimes running down to the wire, I decided it'd make more sense to let the social media aspect slide a bit. How strapped for time am I? Well, while I hate breaking the fourth wall, you should know that episode 55 will be released on the 23rd of April. And right now at this moment, I'm in the process of researching and writing episode 67, which will be released on the 15th of May. The episodes are getting longer, and they're requiring more time to research and write because a century ago there was so much going on. And again, I have to emphasize that I do love doing this, but I am so aware of that ticking clock, and I'm so determined to not fall behind. The problem, again, is that I underestimated how long all of this would take. I was supposed to be finished writing the Versailles anniversary project in February, and begin writing the second half of the Thirty Years' War book, which, by the way, I've had to delay until... December of this year rather than July as planned. The new job pretty much changed everything. It required an awful lot of attention and an awful lot of getting used to. And more practically, in terms of podcast production, it meant I could only write up about two scripts a week rather than five. Plus I decided to try this new thing called the delegation game, which meant that one day a week, or realistically two, was taken up with this new concept. Which, of course, I've really enjoyed, but it also meant that I was always plugged in and connected to the history, as well as to those wonderful delegates who themselves 
probably got a little bit too much history after a while. Now, I have to say, this all feels a bit rich on the one hand, because after all, nobody asked me to do this. Nobody forced me to invent the delegation game, to trawl through thousands of pages worth of the Council of Ten from a century before. Nobody asked, as far as I'm aware, for a podcaster to give a blow-by-blow account on the creation of the Treaty of Versailles. Nobody on top of that forced me to apply for the job or accept the offer to lecture at university. I should emphasise that all of these stresses are made by me and not by you, but like a silly individual who partied too hard, woke up suffering with a hangover and asked you to pity them the next day, I'm saying, hello there, I'm Zach, I'm your host for When Diplomacy Fails, and I kinda need your help. Actually, I need your help for two things. In time for our 7th birthday on the 18th of May, I'll be able to drop some really exciting news that I've been sitting on for a while. All in good time, history friends, but in the meantime, I want your questions. Because on the 18th of May, I'll be dropping this news in a dedicated episode. But after I drop that news, we'll be responding to listener questions in a Q&A. Something we haven't done since February of 2016 or 17, I think. It's been a while anyway. And I'm really looking forward to how this turns out. To send me your questions, just contact me through the usual mediums. Email, wdfpodcast at hotmail.com, Twitter at wdfpodcast, and of course the two Facebook platforms, the group and the page. So long as you provide me with your questions by Saturday the 11th of May, that is a week before our birthday, your question should make the cut. But remember, we'll be opening that episode with some huge news, so even if you don't really care about all those questions and answers, tune in just for that. I'll also be plugging that huge news and the Q&A episode in the next few episodes leading up to that, so listen out for those. So what's the second thing I need help with? Well, this is probably the part where most of you would start to stop listening or fast forward, but it has to be said. I am looking to smash 300 patrons by the 18th of May, but I'm also looking for genuine support in other areas, be it financial or moral support. It is essentially what I'd like to call a call to arms for all history friends. For the weeks before our 7th birthday, to please ramp up your efforts to spread the word about this podcast, to contact me directly and say hi, to sign up on Patreon from as little as $1 a month, or do all three. According to statistics generally accepted by most, only a maximum of 10% of your audience will actually engage with you through all the different mediums. Often, though, it's more like 2 to 5%. I want to challenge these stats. Don't ask me where those stats came from. I'm not a scientist, for crying out loud. But I want to break the mould, and I want your guys' help to do it. If listening to this podcast is something you enjoy doing, if I get you through work, travelling, the gym, ironing, whatever it is, then tell other people about that fact, and tell me too, so I can gloat about it. Let's share some love and come together as a community of people who love history and want to geek out on it in a safe place where no one will judge. When I say you're helping to make history thrive, I don't just say that because it's a handy catchphrase. I really do mean it, and the best way to ensure that I'll be able to keep doing this, whatever the future holds, is to bring up our Patreon page by clicking on the link in the description or by searching WDF Patreon in Google. Have a look at those membership tiers and you'll see that they all look pretty tasty. Although it might sound wholly unnecessary, and maybe even a tad scary, you should know that over 20 hours of extra content awaits in the extra feed, which you can access for $5 a month. That is half the price of Netflix, or a third of the price if you're using Euros. 
Not up for sending a fiver my way each month? Why not one or two dollars? The point is, that I'm trying to make here, there is a support level for everyone. And for the same price as that coffee in Starbucks, which always disappoints you and you're not quite sure why you got it at all, you could be accessing more history content, supporting a creator whose work you enjoy, and putting your money where you believe it should be put. When you're on Patreon as a creator, you often get sent links to these blog posts so that the Patreon Corporation can kind of help you guys out as creators and inspire you to do better in your page, basically. One of the themes which shines through is that key question, and it's something which people like myself and pretty much anyone who does this kind of thing struggles with. That question being, how do you ask your fans to support you financially without coming across as an ignoramus? Now, they didn't use the word ignoramus, but you get the picture. The answer they reached always came down to that central point. This isn't charity we're asking for as creators. In a way, it is a premium membership which we're actually selling. To use the Netflix comparison again, it'd be as if Netflix had loads of free content and they injected ads saying, pay X amount to stream these cool series. Of course, Netflix doesn't do this and its payment model is completely different to mine. But then again, I don't produce full-blown historical films or documentaries. Well, not yet, anyway. You get the picture. Signing up on Patreon gets you content which you won't be able to access anywhere else. And, as you'll learn on the 18th of May, we have things planned well into the future to ensure that I always give you guys the best value for money if you're on Patreon. In return, I've been really fortunate to receive support from some of the most generous people ever. We currently have one fellow giving $100 a month. Five people giving $50, and one person giving 40 not to mention others giving below that level. 20 18 15 etc, etc. These figures aren't secret, all you have to do is look at our Patreon page and you'll see the information is publicly there. You'll be able to find it easily enough. In line with our 7th birthday though, I've added two new spaces on the $50 Bismarck support tier, so that seven people can now support at that level, if they really want, in time for our seventh birthday. Now you might justifiably think, who on earth would give me $50 a month? But you'd be amazed at what people will actually send their money to when they really appreciate something. Now I don't expect a whole load of Bismarcks to emerge from the woodwork, but I hope you will consider, if you haven't before, the power you have to make a difference simply by logging on and sending a few books my way. Even having said what I've said, I always feel really awkward talking about this because nobody likes asking for money. But I have to be confident that you know by now, I'm not some money-grabbing, greedy person who's trying to take advantage. And I don't take any of this for granted either. As I said, this podcast takes a lot of work to make it work. The finished product you listen to has been researched, written, recorded, and edited, and has taken at least 20 hours by the end of the whole process. These are the facts, it's not me complaining, but I would never be able to do this work. Nobody in their right mind would ever put in this much work, that is, if they weren't able to make a living at the same time. The income on Patreon enabled me to make When Diplomacy Fails my job, and enabled me in turn to justify all these man-hours. This means that Patreon literally made the Versailles anniversary project, as well as 1956 and our projects into the future, all actually possible. Without that support, I would have had to get a real job, and this podcast would not be nearly as active or in-depth as it is now. This is the connection which moves me to ask for more, and while it might sound greedy at times and perhaps a little desperate, and maybe you always get annoyed that I ask at the beginning of each of these episodes, or maybe you just fast-forward, or maybe you just listen absent-mindedly and don't really take it in, 
I firmly believe that this is both warranted and justified, because not only am I working far more than the money pays for, but anyone that does sign up gets far more than money typically gets these days. And again, I feel really awkward saying that, but that's the reality. Passion doesn't pay the bills, but wonderful people who are passionate about what you do can pay the bills. So, I guess in a roundabout way, passion does pay the bills. Where am I going with this? Well, perhaps I should just shush now and present the original purpose of this episode, the previews of the Suez Crisis series. Hopefully you haven't been put off or turned off or think any less of me after this. Please remember, I'm so fond of you all and so humbled and flattered that you take time out of your lives to listen to what I have to say about history. I'm very much living the dream in that respect, and soon, when I drop this huge news on you on the 18th of May, you're going to see just how important you've all been to me over the years. So in sum, this is a call to arms for all history friends, to spread the word, to be fit, and to support this podcast financially, if you can, with very flexible tiers, and super rewards if you join up. Please send your questions to me in time for the Q&A by the 11th of May, Please tune into that episode on the 18th of May for that Q&A and that aforementioned super exciting news. Now then, if you're still with us, then you must be eager indeed to hear more about the Suez Crisis. That's great then, let's start from the beginning. What is the Suez Crisis? Well, at its core, the Suez Crisis was a scheme cooked up by the British, French and Israeli governments to wage war against the Egyptians and to seize the Suez Canal, which the Egyptian government had nationalised a few months before. Where it gets more interesting is the fact that the three governments didn't just launch a straight-up war against Egypt, they tried to cover up the truth about what they were doing, by presenting it differently. The Israelis were fighting a war of defence against the Egyptians, and the British and French were intervening militarily to protect the Suez Canal. Yet, neither the world, nor much of the citizens or political opposition in the concerned states, were particularly well fooled. This is what makes the story even more interesting, that the British and French governments launched what was in many respects a naked act of aggression while trying to pass it off as legitimate and noble, even while international opinion was set against them. This all takes place in 1956, of course, in the context of the early Cold War, where the West was still trying to figure itself out, and the Soviet Union was itself buckling under an attempted liberalisation programme following Stalin's death. So, All of this should go to show the Suez Crisis occurred at a fascinating moment in world history. It was a terminal failure in British and French foreign policy, sorry to spoil it for you, but it was the last gasp of the Imperial British and French empires, who collectively believed they could hang with the two superpowers, those being the US and Soviet Union, and that they needed their colonies and colonial influence in order to survive in this act of hanging with them. Additional fascinating details pepper the event, such as the searing cross-examinations which the British government, led by Anthony Eden, was forced to endure. We also see echoes of the appeasement era of the 1930s, as Eden had been Foreign Secretary during the late 1930s, and he tried unsuccessfully in 1956 to persuade his peers and international opinion that the Egyptian leader was a new Hitler who had to be stopped. Middle Eastern diplomacy Anglo-American diplomacy, concerns about the relevance of imperialism, crises in concepts of Western defence, and the unfortunate fact that just as the British and French intervened, the Soviets were squashing a democratic revolution in Budapest. All of these things culminate in probably the most fascinating chapter in British history that I've covered in a very, very long time. 
It's something I've wanted to examine for years, ever since I first found out about what the Suez Crisis was all about, and having finally got the chance here, I'm determined to push it forward as enthusiastically as I possibly can. If you sign up on Patreon to listen to the Suez Crisis, well, first of all, you'll never have to listen to me ramble about it again, because you'll also get ad-free episodes of all regular series going forward, including the current Versailles Anniversary Project, the previous Korean War series, and future 30 Years War series, with scripts to match and voting privileges for some exciting projects we have planned into the future. $5 will get you all that, and the knowledge which will keep you warm and fuzzy to the effect that you have made me very happy indeed. So what's in the box of the Suez Crisis episodes that we've done? How is this whole thing spaced out and structured? Well, don't forget, episodes 1 and 2 of the Suez Crisis are freely available, so go and check them out if you're in need of a refresher of what the French were doing in Algeria and where the Suez Canal actually came from. But then we turn to episode 3, called Egyptian Conniption, which serves as a tale of Victorian-era attitudes and ludicrously delusional memorandums. As the British government underwent a change and waved goodbye to great old men like Churchill in spring 1955, it was clear at the same time that this new government had no intention of changing its imperial tone. According to this administration, led by Antony Eden, Egypt was a place to be held onto, not relinquished. Egypt's new president, Gamal Abdel Nasser, was a figure to be loathed rather than cooperated with. British prestige, as much as her long-standing strategic and security interests, depended on holding the canal. That neither Churchill nor his successor in Antony Eden proved capable of holding Nasser back speaks volumes about the awakening in Egyptian national consciousness which was beginning in the 1950s. And this is something which episode 3 also looks at. As the men at the top of the coup finished their own struggles in Egypt and Colonel Nasser surged ahead, it became apparent that Egypt was in something of an ideal position. It had its problems, of course, as a country. Its legacies of poverty and inequality could go on for days. But it was in an ideal strategic, geographic position at the same time. It was poised as the link between Africa and the Middle East. Egypt was, in many respects, the crossroads between different worlds. It was also potentially a crossroad in the Cold War. But for the moment, Nasser knew that his bread was buttered on its western side. Episode 3 tells the story which is often forgotten then, that of what happened before the Suez Crisis broke out, before conflict and crisis had their day, and when negotiation and diplomacy were allowed to flourish in this Anglo-Egyptian relationship. An agreement for policing the Suez Canal and for mobilising it during wartime was signed with the Cairo government. To insulate these deals, a northern tier system of alliances with other Middle Eastern states like Jordan, Iran and Iraq was signed, to the utter disgust of the Israelis. It seemed, at least on some level, that Britain was giving peace a chance at this early stage. Yet, the more that the Foreign Secretary, and then the Prime Minister, saw of Nasser's Egypt, the less Eden liked. It was impossible to deal with an Egypt that did not seem to know its place, but with every meeting of the Egyptians and British representatives came a painful reminder that all was not as it had once been. The Egyptian puppets were gone, and it was uncomfortably clear that these new Egyptian men were pulling their own strings. So that's episode 3, but episode 4 we give an audio preview of. Episode 2.4, Britain Bitten, continues the narrative of an embarrassed and dissatisfied Britain butting its head against Egyptian stubbornness. 
In this episode, we see what kind of government Anthony Eden led, and how he shook it up, or failed to shake it up, after he assumed the premiership in spring 1955. Anthony Eden may have deserved his turn, as the campaign posters at the time put it, but he would quickly exhaust the sense of goodwill he had built up over the years. In spite of his reputation for bravery and integrity when standing up to the appeasement policy of the 1930s, Eden proved wholly ill-equipped for dealing with this strange new world. Emerging from Churchill's shadow, he felt extra pressures to act as though nothing had changed, and to pursue a conservative foreign policy mindset as though he was still living in the 1930s. After setting Eden's premiership in context in episode 2.4, we switch gears to President Nasser's policy. Nasser had some great ambitions for his country, and these centred on getting Egypt back on track technologically and fixing the grave problems which geography and poverty presented. The Aswan Dam was a radical solution which would solve these problems in one go. By the construction of this billion-dollar project, the power of the Nile could be harnessed, disasters floods avoided, and the energy of nature made proper use of for industrial purposes. It seemed like the ideal solution, save for the key problem that Nasser completely lacked the kind of money required to engage in this massive project. While he was increasingly turning towards the Soviets for arms, for the moment he was happy to look to the Anglo-American bankers to put up the funds. The decision of the Americans and British to put up money for this construction project may seem, in the context of what happened afterwards, like a very odd decision indeed. Yet, as we'll see, the Aswan Dam was not the investment opportunity which the British had hoped. Instead, once they and the Americans reneged on the deal, it proved to be the nail in the coffin of the already shaky Anglo-Egyptian relationship, and the first step of a journey towards conflict and crisis. Have a listen to this short clip of episode 4 and see what you think. Looking back retrospectively on British domestic and foreign politics in the 18 months or so between Eden's appointment as Prime Minister and the eruption of the Suez Crisis, it is impossible to ignore what went on behind closed doors in the British political establishment. Different figures, had they been in place, would never have allowed matters to progress as they did. Yet, much like Benjamin Disraeli had discovered three generations before, the reshaping of conservative identity, or rather, the reshaping of his own political identity and legacy, was immensely difficult to achieve without some measure of foreign intervention. In Benjamin Disraeli's case, he was blocked or outmaneuvered by the stalwart foreign policy director, Lord Derby. But Eden suffered from no such restrictions. After living in Churchill's shadow for so long, Eden perhaps never completely realised that he had adopted the shadow as his own. It was as though the old man had never left, and Churchill's out-of-touch ramblings still led Conservative policy. Eden's control over foreign policy was made possible by Selwyn Lloyd's appointment in late 1955 to the position of Foreign Secretary. Harold Macmillan, the man who Eden by now identified as his political rival, and in fact the man who would succeed him as Prime Minister in 1957, was disgusted to be removed from the post where he was settling into nicely and to be shipped off to the unfamiliar Treasury office instead. Harold Macmillan was out of the way, and Eden was rightly pleased, but Selwyn Lloyd was just as unfamiliar and unsuited to the Foreign Ministry as Macmillan was with the Treasury. An almost hilarious recounting of Selwyn Lloyd's unlikely rise through the ranks of the Foreign Office deserves to be recorded here, if only to show the very arbitrary way in which new appointments were handed down, whether one wanted them or not. 
In fact, it would have made far more sense to put Lloyd in the treasury and keep Macmillan where he was, as Lloyd testified when he remembered Churchill's placing of him in the Foreign Office as a junior minister in 1951, where his career in the Foreign Office began, plainly against his wishes. As Selwyn Lloyd himself recalled, All my activity had been with dealing with the finance bill, fighting the budgets as Secretary of the Conservative Finance Committee, and I expected to go to the Treasury. Then I got a message that I was to go down to Chartwell to see Mr. Churchill. When I got there, Churchill said, We haven't seen much of each other, but I hear well of you, and I want you to be Minister of State at the Foreign Office. I really could have been knocked over with the proverbial feather, because it had never entered my head. So I said, But, sire, I I think there must be some mistake. I've never been to a foreign country except in war. I don't speak any foreign language. I don't like foreigners. That was a view which I later changed. I've never spoken in a foreign affairs debate. I've never even listened to one. Churchill said, Young man, those all seem to me to be positive advantages. And he told me to go to the foreign office where Mr. Eden was waiting for me. A friend had lent me a car with a driver, and we went up to London and I said, Take me to the foreign office. My driver said, Where is it, sir? And I suddenly realised that I didn't know. So we had to stop off in Whitehall and ask a policeman. So that was episode 4, but in episode 2.5, Oh No Cairo, we look at British commitments in the Middle East, and how setbacks there could massively drag down ideas of British prestige in that region. What did the French have to fear from Colonel Nasser, and how did this tie in with later Anglo-French agreements? The answer can be found here. Also of note in this episode is the moment when the Anglo-American loan to Nasser was cancelled, which meant that the Egyptian leader would be unable to construct his Aswan Dam. With this setback for Nasser came Antony Eden's effort to paint the event as a personal triumph for himself, when in reality Britain had been led to this step by the Americans. Speaking of Eden, here we receive our first glimpse of the Prime Minister, which suggests that he may not have been the flawless, crusading statesman of the 1930s, and that he was, on the contrary, exactly what Britain did not need right now. Have a listen to this clip on Middle Eastern diplomacy here. The spectacle of Britain's declining influence in the Middle East made work very difficult indeed for Antony Eden, but he reacted to these difficulties by becoming more radical. Antony Eden began to argue for a policy of confrontation with Nasser in Egypt and across the Middle East, anchored by the decision to expand upon the Baghdad Pact, which Nasser despised. Antony Eden believed it would be wise to ask the Americans to join the Baghdad Pact, and Selwyn Lloyd, his foreign secretary, supported this line as though it was his own idea. Selwyn Lloyd put forward the idea that We should make a further effort to persuade the United States to join the pact. We should seek to draw Iraq and Jordan more closely together. We should try to detach Saudi Arabia from Egypt by making a plain to King Saud the nature of Nasser's ambitions. We should secure further support for Libya in order to prevent the extension of Egyptian or communist influence there. We should seek to establish in Syria a government more friendly to the West. We should counter Egyptian subversion in the Sudan and in the Persian Gulf. Selwyn Lloyd's suggestions represented nothing less than an active and never-ending policy of confrontation with Nasser by hitting him in all the sensitive spots. 
This, if you'll recall, was what the ambassador to Egypt, Humphrey Trevelyan, had warned Lloyd about in February. If they were to oppose Nasser, they would have to go the whole hog, and if they did this, Nasser would certainly find ways of his own to attack and harm British interests, and so it would be better to come to terms with Nasser instead. But Lloyd was no longer listening to Trevelyan's tempered advice. He was instead towing his mentor's line, and had seemingly abandoned any semblance of moderation in the process. At this stage in the game, in early April 1956, Selwyn Lloyd was already suggesting a method of attack which would soon take on a life of its own. The idea that Britain would refuse to finance Nasser's pet project, the Aswan Dam. So in episode 2.6, The Entente Rides Again, we examined the increasingly close cooperation between Britain and France in light of the significant defeat of Western imperialist ambitions in Egypt. We opened the episode with a defining scene, that being President Nasser's nationalisation of the Suez Canal. From that moment, every event in the preceding crisis would follow. The nationalisation of the canal, while foreign opinion did not favour the means, was not the moment that the world flocked to condemn Nasser's regime, though, as Antony Eden might have hoped. For a time, for sure, the Egyptian leader would be seen as unstable, aggressive and unreasonable, but this bad press would die down, as the Egyptians proved themselves very capable in handling these new responsibilities which the Suez Canal Company represented. After convincing himself that the nationalisation of the canal represented a national humiliation for himself and his government, Eden proceeded to cement the Anglo-French commitments in the days that followed. Only 24 hours after the nationalisation occurred, French government ministers and the French Premier were talking of travelling to London. Within a week, military plans were being developed. These plans would be carried out by World War II-era weaponry, under World War II-era ideas of strategy, and even in the same secret bunkers under the Thames, which had been used by Churchill to plan resistance to the Nazis. Yet this latest iteration of the Entente Cordiale was to prove anything but glorious, since at its heart was the desire to turn back the clock, and preserve the systems and status quo which held the developing world in permanent bondage. This mission was to doom Eden's career, and lead to the deaths of so many lives, and its planning stage began here. So that's episode 2.6, but episode 2.7, Blind Intrigue, examines the steps which led towards the military intervention in Egypt by placing the British behaviour in its imperial context. Having touched on it before, we look in more detail at the situation in spring 1955, where Britain remained a premier power in the Middle East, while American representation in that theatre was not particularly impressive, save for some American commercial links with the different oil barons. In the space of a year, though, disquiet in the Middle East and several threats to Britain's sphere of influence emerged, crowned by Nasser's diabolical policy and his refusal to fall in line with British desires. The personality of Antony Eden stands out during these eventful months, as the veteran Tory statesman appears to have been wholly unable to accept the new status quo, or the rebellious qualities of a once docile corner of the British hegemony. Even before the nationalisation of the Suez Canal Company, Eden was adamant that Nasser was not to be bargained with, and certainly not to be trusted. Convinced of this view, Eden sought to make all of his peers, both at home and abroad, come to see it this way as well. Such efforts were not wholly successful, as even following the nationalisation, Eden found to his horror that several of his peers in government, and particularly the opposition, 
were not convinced that force needed to be used. Was the nationalisation of the canal company really such a big deal? Did it really require a war with Egypt? As per the terms of the military plans already made with France after the nationalisation occurred, preparations completely out of the view of Parliament were underway. Here, Eden followed what was to become his modus operandi during the crisis, acting with the approval and support of only a few peers, while everyone else was kept in the dark. This policy, while making everything faster and avoiding all that red tape which would otherwise have to be cut, was to prove lethal once everything blew up in Eden's face. Have a listen to this preview on British policy to see what I mean. After several weeks at sea on a rolling old tub, with a sergeant major who insisted on regular inspections, and being subjected to bad food and a lack of training, the men were close to mutiny. After some leave in Malta, many returned to the barracks in a drunken stupor, only to be told by the despised sergeant major that it was time for another inspection. The sergeant major was hoisted above the men's soldiers and carried to the edge of the boat in Malta's harbour. Only the timely intervention of the lieutenant prevented a serious, watery incident. This scene, while vivid, was representative of the shoddy mobilisation efforts underway in Britain, but also in France. Lessons had evidently not been learned by the Korean War. No new investment in the armed forces, it seemed, had ever been made. The food was infamously terrible, supplies were non-existent, and hundreds of reservists deserted in West Germany rather than returned to service. To those French paratroopers stationed in a PO War-esque camp on Cyprus during the prelude to the operation, the situation was akin to a nightmare. For the sake of secrecy, they were told, no letters from home could be accepted. But this didn't excuse the pitiful rations, half a tin of beans, scant bread and scarcely any water, which the French paratrooper was expected to sustain himself upon. Nobody knew where they were going either, and unlike Korea, there was no cause for which to arouse sympathy, however limited, among the men. As the historian Barry Turner perceptively noted in his book on Suez, it is understandable that Eden wished to keep things under wraps. Yet, what is not understandable, and quite surprising, is that Eden believed he could just pluck men out of their normal lives, move them around willy-nilly in outdated equipment, and expect no trouble to ensue as the soldier just blindly followed instructions. As serious as Eden may have been about the operation, to the common soldier or reservist expected to fight this battle which he did not understand, he can't have helped but feel as though Eden and his cabinet were blithely ignorant of, and indifferent towards, the problems and complexities of such a campaign. Let alone did they have any care for the actual welfare of the men tasked with carrying Eden's brainchild out. So in episode 2.8, Deception as Policy, we're confronted with a common theme from this crisis. That being the increasingly secretive plotting which took place behind the scenes in early autumn 1956. While Eden worked feverishly to make the conflict he desired come together, the countless variables continued to haunt him. We see here a glimpse of another common theme which will occupy us later on, the use of legal arguments to support the Anglo-French operation on the grounds that Nasser had somehow infringed upon British rights and that Britain was thus entitled to compensation. In this episode we're also introduced to one of the banes of Eden's life, the leader of the Labour Party, Hugh Gateskill, who insisted that intervention in Egypt was wrong and who had begun to suspect that something unsavoury was afoot, despite what Eden told him. And Gateskill was not the only one. 
Further abroad, the American desire to have a conference of Suez Canal users to actually find some diplomatic way of solving this crisis was met with private indignation from the British and French, whose governments would uphold to the end that Washington did not understand what was needed to deal with a man like Nasser. Increasingly, comparisons with Nasser to Hitler and the idea that Britain must not appease such figures yet again did the rounds. Eden was determined to have his interventionist cake and eat it, and he instructed his foreign office deputies to look into the Charter of the United Nations as well. With so many different avenues to justification, Eden was certain that at least one of them had to provide a path to conflict. As we'll see, he was ultimately to be disappointed. Have a listen to this preview to get a feel for what's to come here. Nasser's willingness to compensate the shareholders and refrain from restricting any international shipping placed Eden in a difficult spot. The antagonistic, belligerent, villainous President Nasser, well, he didn't look so bad after all. Sure, Eisenhower's Secretary of State, John Foster Dulles, could agree that the forceful way in which Egyptian troops had entered the offices of the Suez Canal Company was impolitique, vowing that he would help the Anglo-French governments to achieve satisfaction, but the more Dulles looked at it, the more he came to appreciate that the Anglo-French governments were angry because they had been outsmarted and embarrassed, rather than because they had been genuinely wronged. Nasser would have been more than happy to continue on as normal. It can hardly be said that he wanted a war with the British and French, whatever his nationalistic rhetoric may have indicated. As August progressed, Eden's initially stiff stance, which had been so popular with his peers and the public alike, began to falter. It wasn't that Eden stopped insisting privately for a military solution, but that his peers began to doubt whether it was such a good idea after all. Having initially been caught up in the heat of the moment, the more they thought about it, the more many backbenchers and members of Eden's own cabinet began to discern the problems involved in acting aggressively. There was also the problem that the more time which passed, the less and less any Anglo-French action would appear as an understandable knee-jerk reaction rather than a conspiratorial plot. The former option to act quickly in response to Nasser's nationalisation would still have been problematic in terms of international law, but at least it would have been launched quickly when the nationalisation was fresh in everyone's minds. However, by taking over two and a half months to prepare the intervention, the Anglo-French governments appeared more like scheming imperialists rather than disgruntled powers with genuine grievances. Worse for Eden and for French Premier Guy Mollet, the period of waiting and preparing in secret necessitated them lying their heads off to their American allies, an act which hardly garnered any sympathy in Washington by the time their behaviour was out in the open for all the world to see. So that was episode 8, but in episode 2.9, The Fix Is In, we look at that moment which has become infamous in history, the collusion between Britain, France and Israel. At this point, we're almost ready to see these sneaky meetings take place, and for the infamous agreement to take shape, but first, we investigate another important and underrated angle of the crisis, the key element of the Suez Crisis story which demonstrates how low Britain sank must be the manifest failure of the British government to develop any legal argument in favour of their interventionist actions. In the past, formulating such an argument was simple. An act of aggression against British interests or allies was enough to provoke a war. Now, though, the whole issue was a good deal trickier. 
For one, the Suez Canal Company might have been defined as a British interest in 1956, but it was also by no means damaged by the nationalisation of late July of that year. Second, try as he might, Eden failed in his efforts to convince the opposition and many of his peers that legally Britain had a case in Egypt. Not only was Nasser working hard not to give Eden any excuse at this stage, but he then even compensated British shareholders in the canal company over the coming months. While many would argue that Nasser's use of force to nationalise the Suez Canal Company in the first place was unsavoury, it was not in the strictest sense illegal, because Nasser was only taking what was in his country, and thus his to take. In this episode, that is episode 2.9, we are introduced to a man named Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice, a person of foremost importance thanks to his legal work in the British Foreign Office. This might all sound a little bit dry and not all that interesting to you guys, but I really found it fascinating to examine Fitzmaurice's mission. And Fitzmaurice's mission was to find legal justification for an Anglo-French war in Egypt. This, as Fitzmaurice was made aware, was an impossible task. It was to Eden's immense frustration that Fitzmaurice's integrity was greater than his loyalty or patriotism. And I use those terms in quotation marks there. Fitzmaurice refused to give Eden the legal justification he desired. And while on the surface this might seem like an unimportant sequence of events, Fitzmaurice's convictions here demonstrated clearly at the time, and speak loudly to this day, the fact that Eden's interventionist policy in Egypt was baseless and was devoid of the honour or noble intentions which he would later claim. If the Prime Minister couldn't even get his minion in the Foreign Office to see sense, then how on earth was he going to persuade the rest of the world? This question, as we'll see, was far from Eden's thoughts. If he couldn't get legal approval, then he would move along with the plan regardless. So in episode 10, Israeli sneaky, we are taken to a scene of division. The Commonwealth, seen as so vital to Britain's interests, was beginning to fracture along the question of what the best course of action to take against President Nasser would be. The Canadian, Australian and New Zealand governments were all uneasy at the prospect of war, and some, like the Canadian Foreign Minister, Lester Pearson, advocated a diplomatic approach. While Eden forged ahead with an aggressive policy, torpedoing another conference on the Suez Canal in the process, he increasingly began to alienate the Americans. Prime Minister Eden didn't seem to care what other nations thought, though. He was eager to make even better friends with the French throughout September. It was at this time in our story that things in France began to change. They were increasingly coming to provide weapons and support to a new ally, Israel. And it's at this point in our story, largely because of French prodding and intrigue, that the Israeli element of the story became all-important. While the British were not yet let in on the plan, Franco-Israeli military cooperation and supply deals were paving the way towards a more trusting, beneficial relationship which could soon be exploited. The Israeli government, led by David Ben-Gurion, was also desirous of a war in Egypt, that nation which had threatened his own nation with destruction time and time again. The dilemma was that Israel could not be seen as the aggressor, but how was such a war then to be crafted and set in motion if they couldn't be the aggressor? Scheming heads were set together, and before long a solution more incredible than anyone could have imagined was brought into being. Have a listen to a preview on these infamous developments taking shape. 
Eden knew that he needed to keep pressure on Nasser, so in cooperation with the French, a decision was held whereupon it was decided that the best way to pile pressure on Cairo would be to remove the European experts in the Suez Canal Company. These drivers, or pilots, were required to train for nearly a decade before they could have the honour of guiding the vessels through the canal, and it was the opinion of the former chief executive of the Suez Canal Company, a Frenchman by the name of Jacques-Georges Picot, that without European pilots, the canal traffic would seize up and chaos would ensue. The idea that the Egyptians would be helpless without their European experts on hand to guide them was proven utterly false within 48 hours of the very provocative decision to repatriate the Europeans on the 14th of September. Eden imagined a terrible scene, perhaps even retaliation on Nasser's part, with the exodus of the European experts back home. To his immense chagrin, and to the immense embarrassment of Jacques-Georges Picot, though, the canal didn't seize up, and the Egyptians proved just as able of guiding the ships through the canal as their European counterparts. So, with this failure, it was back to the drawing board once more. Problems existed in the realm of military strategy as well. Operation Musketeer had been the agreed-to military plan for the Anglo-French leadership to follow. This entailed a strike on Alexandria above all, which would be followed by a march southwards towards Cairo, where President Nasser would then be unseated as president, a regime change would follow, and the canal would be retaken. This plan contained several variables, and necessitated close Anglo-French cooperation if the Egyptian air force was to be destroyed, and the element of coordinated surprise maintained. On the 7th of September, though, discussions about Operation Musketeer had reached something of an impasse. After due consideration, and after having received some important information from their sources in Alexandria, the Anglo-French command was getting cold feet over the plan to attack Alexandria. For episode 2.11, A Protocol for War, we venture at long last into that controversial moment when Britain, France and Israel began to move closer together. The Severs Protocol was neither developed nor signed in a day, and in the first two weeks of October 1956, negotiations critically important to the latter conflict were underway. At first, Foreign Secretary Selwyn Lloyd hoped to make use of the UN Security Council to gain British satisfaction in Egypt, and for a time he was successful in the same, because Antony Eden was ill and thus absent and unable to order his subordinate around. Once the Prime Minister recovered, though, he ramped up the pressure on Selwyn Lloyd, and Lloyd was encouraged, alongside his French counterpart, to torpedo the negotiations in the Security Council, which had aimed at a peaceful resolution. While this peace effort was frustrated, a looming conflict aside from all these considerations began to develop. This involved Jordan, Britain's firm ally in the Middle East, and the difficult relationship with Israel, the newly established ally of the French, since neither the French nor the British wished to see their newfound Entente fall apart, but nor did they wish to see their allies, the French ally in Israel and the British ally in Jordan, leave their side, the French government determined it would be better to spill the beans on what was being agreed with Israel rather than watch the different allies initiate an unwanted war in the region. Thus, the French travelled to Chequers and in Eden's swanky manor home on the 14th of October 1956 to initiate the first step of the collusion, which was to become infamous. At first he was hesitant, but Antony Eden was soon convinced of the genius of this plan. 
Britain, France and Israel would work together against the common Egyptian foe. And this partnership would surely sink President Nasser once and for all. You simply must have a listen to this preview of that moment. It has to be heard to be believed. If the Iraqis were moving soldiers into the sensitive region north of Israel, then Ben-Gurion could never feel confident ordering a strike against Egypt, the true target. Realising that things were escalating, and that perhaps only he had the power to solve the crisis, who should step in but the French Premier, Guy Malay? Guy Malay knew full well that if he didn't come clean with the British about the French deals with Israel soon, then a proxy war completely aside from the strike against Egypt could well break out, distracting everyone's attentions as the spheres of influence in the Middle East of the British and French collided. This had the potential to pull apart the new Entente, and Malay couldn't allow it. He was willing to take a risk, to come clean with the British about how far the Franco-Israeli agreements went, in the hope that this would bring London on side with Tel Aviv and Paris, and strengthen the Allied hand against Egypt. It sounded sensible enough in Malay's mind, but the critical problem was how to get Antony Eden on side, when the Prime Minister had never been overtly fond of the idea of an Israeli partnership. Guy Malay was thus banking on the fact that this time, the British Prime Minister would agree to an Israeli partnership because he planned to sell this partnership as one which was aimed specifically at undoing President Nasser. On the 13th of October, Guy Malay cabled Antony Eden with the news that the following day, a French delegation would be arriving in the strictest secrecy to meet with him, with the Prime Minister that is, about an important new development. The meeting was to take place at Chequers, Eden's country residence. The tangled events of the Middle East over the 10th to the 13th of October were far from the first occasion that Israel had come up in British discussions. As early as the 28th of July, two days after the nationalisation of the Suez Canal, Israel had been nominated as a potential ally by a member of Antony Eden's cabinet, and it was nominated by a man who soon became Tel Aviv's most enthusiastic supporter, Harold Macmillan. So that was episode 11. In episode 2.12, Collusion and Delusion, we follow on from the previous episode and go to the contentious few days between the 22nd to 24th of October 1956, where the war plan that would create the Suez Crisis was created, developed and signed by Britain, France and Israel in an unassuming Parisian suburb. This process was, of course, far from straightforward or guaranteed to produce a result. It was also top secret. It required the French reassuring both the Israeli and British representatives about the solid nature of their plan, and it also demonstrated the lack of tact which British Foreign Secretary Selwyn Lloyd in particular seemed to possess. One of the most incredible scenes, though, comes near the end of the episode, when on the evening of the 24th of October, Britain's representatives returned home to Antony Eden with a copy of the Severs Protocol in hand only to come under rhetorical attack for leaving this proverbial paper trail in the course of their top-secret discussions. Antony Eden was well aware that there could be no evidence of what had been done at Sevres, and he would send these men back to France to track down and destroy any pieces of evidence that remained. He also, of course, destroyed the copy of the Sevres Protocol that he had. The Prime Minister was already planning ahead to what he would say when word of the crisis got out, but for the sake of plausible deniability, Eden wished there to be no evidence and no written record of the collusion. Thankfully for historians since, Eden's wishes were not fulfilled. 
Moving to our recently released episodes on the Suez Crisis, with episode 13, When a Plan Comes Together, we examine the final moments of peace between the 25th to 29th of October, as the different governments involved in the conspiracy to attack Egypt and make it look like some kind of accident, all prepared the ground before them. In Britain, the focus was on the legal arguments still, even despite the clear problems which Britain's legal advisers and the Foreign Office had in painting any British attack on Egypt as legally justified. Remember Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice and the impossible task he was set in that regard. While some less informed cabinet ministers, like the Lord Chancellor, insisted that there was grounds for claiming that British rights were involved and intervention in Egypt therefore justified, the majority of the legal profession in Britain disagreed. Anthony Eden, meanwhile, sought to lie and deceive his way towards the conflict, letting no hints drop in the meantime that what was to come would profoundly affect Britain's position in the world. The French and Israeli governments were already actively mobilised for war at this stage, involved as each was in their own miniature struggle for supremacy which promised to tie into the Egyptian situation. For the French, it was Algeria and President Nasser's tireless support of the enemies of France. For Israel, it was President Nasser's threatening pan-Arabism and his refusal to permit Israel access to the Suez Canal. While these schemes progressed, hints were dropped and Egyptian nerves were frayed. Surely, though, it would not be possible to initiate such a conflict. Surely the United Nations, or the United States, or NATO, or something would prevent such a 19th century approach to international relations from taking place. Indeed, in this strange transition period between world war, decolonization, and the increasing focus on domestic matters, here were three powers about to turn back the clock in policy and behaviour, in the name of a plan which was soon to shatter world opinion and dramatically alter the debate. It is a sequence of events which has to be heard to be believed, so have a listen to this preview here. It is worth considering an additional motive, not just for intervention in Egypt, but for leaving the Americans in the dark. Eden would note in his memoirs in 1960 that We have many times led Europe in the fight for freedom. It would be an ignoble end to our long history if we accepted to perish by degrees. Eden added that the seizure of the Suez Canal had left Europe without a choice in the matter. Force would have to be used against Egypt independently of the United States. This would, in the process, challenge the existing global order and American predominance within, or, lest Britain would be forced to accept, a master and vassal relationship. We have seen before how both the British and French subscribed to the idea that only with their empires or commonwealths could they keep pace with the other world powers of the day. Suez and President Nasser represented distinct and serious challenges to this potential. But what of the idea that Britain and France could somehow speak for Western Europe, that it could act in the name of Italy, West Germany, or the Low Countries in asserting European importance independently of the United States. While we may view the Cold War as a bipolar situation, with the West versus the East, or capitalism versus communism, or something to that effect, the reality is, in the mid-1950s, that the situation was a great deal more complex. In the first place, the British had come around gradually to the fact that the Americans were not interested in developing NATO any further. Where London desired a political alliance, with the relations between each member of NATO being normalised, Washington rejected this, in fear of a British attempt, or an attempt by any other state within NATO, 
to use the alliance to compel American intervention in any of the bloody colonial wars which continued to be waged by the Europeans. NATO was to be a defensive alliance, an exercise in collective security, mostly directed against the Soviets, and nothing more. To the French, dissatisfaction loomed from the shattering experience of defeat and retreat from imperialism in Asia, but also from issues closer to home. Neither the Brussels Pact nor the Western European Union, which emerged, appeared particularly strong, and great divergences in opinion existed over where West Germany should stand in all of this. Should West Germany be permitted to field its own army, to possess nuclear weapons, or to have an equal say in how any European Union might be developed? In Paris, the answer to all of these questions remained a determined none. The order of the day, in spite of a great reduction in French hostility towards the Germans since 1945, was to increase French influence and prevent the Germans from entering the equation on an equal footing to the French. Finally, for episode 14, our most recent episode, but by no means our last, we change our focus to the situation at home in Britain. Episode 2.14, Attacked at Home, takes us to the scenes facing Antony Eden in Britain in the final days of October. Having orchestrated an Israeli-Egyptian war, the plan was now to issue an ultimatum and for Anglo-French forces to swoop into Egypt to separate the two belligerents. Such a noble act, Eden believed, would cloak the fact that Britain and France were really there to oust Nasser, recoup prestige and occupy the Suez Canal for Western benefit. It was a thoroughly imperialistic, backwards set of policy aims that moved Eden's government forward, and what he seems to never have suspected during the time he spent crafting it was just how the opposition in Britain would respond. Incredibly, the Prime Minister seems to have expected everyone to have just believed him and his bare-faced lies. The fact that they did not, and that many were aghast as the British acted in tandem with France and acted outside the realm of the United Nations, forced Eden to go on the defensive. The Prime Minister had completely underestimated the situation, and he was now put in a position where he would have to lie in order to defend himself. Amidst rumours, which put it that he was largely to blame for the crisis which was unfolding, Eden would insist that British forces were operating with France to keep the peace and protect the interests of the world, represented in the Suez Canal. What a noble set of goals, except of course, all these claims were full of hot air. Whether it was arrogance, naivety, a mixture of both, or just being totally out of touch with the mood of the political nation, Eden surged straight ahead into a kind of massacre, where every move he made was challenged, and every claim he put forward was scrutinised. Under such circumstances were political and military disasters made, but the Prime Minister had made his bed, conspiratorial and confused, as it had been. Now he would be forced to lie in this bed. Have a listen here to part of a speech from the Labour leader, Hugh Gateskill, who really took Eden to town in this respect. Gateskill concluded, Even worse is the effect on the third pillar of our foreign policy, which has now been so wantonly attacked by the government, that being our support for the United Nations. Indeed, it is our attack upon the principles and the letter of the Charter, which is the reason that our action has been so coldly, indeed, hostilely received by both the Commonwealth and the United States. In the first place, there is the veto of the United States' resolution. The Foreign Secretary has frequently made play with the fact that the United Nations is 
not much good because anything that is put forward is vetoed. Who's responsible for the veto this time, though? Only the British and French governments. And if it had not been for their actions here, there would have been a unanimous resolution of the Security Council. I can only describe this as a major act of sabotage against the United Nations. Secondly, and even more serious, is our own intervention, our own armed intervention in this matter. Any impartial observer must recognise that this is a clear breach of the Charter of the United Nations. Whatever doubt there may be about the degree of aggression in the Israeli invasion of Egypt or the extent of the provocation which she suffered, there can unfortunately be no doubt about the nature of the British and French aggression. We are now faced with this situation. The Egyptians have, of course, as they were bound to do, protested to the Security Council against the threat of force, and no doubt, very shortly, against the act of force. There will, therefore, be a further debate on the Security Council. No doubt the British and French will be able, once again, unaided, to veto any decision of the Security Council. They may be very proud of that, but it will not impress the public opinion of the world. The next stage will be, without doubt, the reference of this whole matter to the Assembly of the United Nations. I wonder whether the government can give us any idea of how many other members of the Assembly of the United Nations the British and French governments think they can enrol in their support. I very much doubt whether they will have a single supporter. It is, I'm afraid, only too obvious that if this matter is pressed, as it will be, in the Assembly of the United Nations, there will almost certainly be a two-thirds majority against us. This is a terribly serious situation. The whole power of the United Nations can be invoked to stop us. Is that what the Prime Minister really wants? Is that what the Honourable Members reckon is going to happen? And are they satisfied with it? And with that, that's the end of the previews and the end of this episode. Hopefully by now you feel clued in on what the Suez Crisis series is all about. And perhaps you feel compelled now to sign up on Patreon for the magical price of only $5. Why is it magical? Because never before has $5 brought you so much stuff, including things that money can't, but apparently can buy in this case, such as my eternal love and gratitude. Either way, history friends. By making it through the end of this episode, you must be a super fan of this show. So remember to spread the word and respond to our call to arms by getting the word of when diplomacy fails out. And send me your questions in time for our Q&A on the 18th of May. Above all, pat yourself on the back for listening in, because I appreciate you. I really, really do. Until next time then, history friends, my name is Zach, and this has been probably a really annoying, but hopefully somewhat enlightening episode for you. So thanks for listening so very much and I'll be seeing you all soon Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.